Y'all turn with me to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 1. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. We started last week um, in this most mysterious book of the entire Bible, most controversial, most, uh, some would say, intriguing, interesting, some would say scary. But uh, we got started last week. Y'all didn't fire me, so I'm going to keep on going. That's a good thing. Now, I want to give you a challenge this morning because there's a lot to cover. We're going to try to cover chapters two and three today, and there's a lot there. So I'm going to talk really fast, and my challenge to you is you're going to have to listen. You're going to have to stay engaged. I know ordinarily, listen, I've been there. I've been where you are. I know ordinarily you can sort of zone out for a while and think about other things and then come back in, and, and you haven't really missed that much, right? You're supposed to say no, but you, you know that's true. So, to, But today, today, it's going to be content-heavy so ladies, if you know that look your husband gets when he's got his eyes on you, but he's not really listening to you, I mean, you, you recognize that today, you have my permission to snap your fingers in front of his face or whatever. Um, teenagers, if, if somebody's trying to talk to you about whatever today, just give them that look that says, really, you want to do this now? It's 168 hours in a week. You're going to do this now. I mean, let's, let's stay engaged today because this is important stuff. And the reason it's important is not because of me. Think about this for a moment. If you showed up on a Sunday morning at First Baptist and you heard, hey, the pastor got a letter in the mail from Jesus for us, would you want to stick around to hear what it was in it? Yeah, you probably would. In fact, your attitude would probably be like, okay, let's, let's, you know, okay, Jeff, we don't need any jokes. We don't need any introduction. Just read the dang letter. I want to know what God has to say to us. And so that's, that's our purpose today. Because the book of Revelation is a letter to us from God. I know, I know we think of it as this guidebook to the end of the world. The, the honest truth is Revelation wasn't written so that preachers could make a lot of money um, scaring us to death with their interpretations of prophecy. It wasn't written so we could know how everything's going to go down. None of us is going to know until it happens. It was written as a letter, originally a letter to seven churches that really existed 2,000 years ago in the region of Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. Those churches were going through some of the same things we're going through today. And the original, I, I think the point to these original listeners, these original readers, uh, were, were basically three commands, three, three things that God wanted us to have from the book of Revelation. I told you this last week. Um, this is going to be the theme throughout our study. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to make sure that when Christ returns, we are ready for His return and ready for whatever happens in the meantime. He wants us to be aware because there is an unseen war going on around us. And it's more real and it's more important and it's more eternally significant than the things that we have our eyes on. And number three, he wants us to be encouraged because often it seems like evil is winning. Often it seems like nothing we do does any good. He wants us to see that ultimately good triumphs, that love wins, that Jesus will reign. So all these things are, are, are reasons why this letter was written. But in chapters two and three of Revelation, which a lot of people often just skip right over, he speaks a specific word to each one of these seven churches that were the original recipients, a specific message to each one. And we're going to look at those. We're going to look at each one this morning. And my challenge for you is not only stay engaged, but after it's over, talk amongst yourselves and say, which one of those seven? All of them, I think, are important for us to hear this morning. All of them speak to us in different ways. But which one of those seven do you think fits the situation here at First Baptist most most perfectly and most accurately. So let's pick up with chapter 2, verse 1. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we're going to look at the other six letters. We're not going to look at them in the same detail, but we're going to look at each one of them. I just want you to know that all seven letters have certain elements in common. They're very similar. They're about the same length. They all have the same sort of pattern to them. They all begin with an introduction, and it says, to the angel of the church at. Now, there's two possibilities for interpreting that. Either that's referring to the pastor of that church, and you might say, well, since when is a pastor an angel? Good question. The actual Greek word, and this was written in Greek, the actual Greek word for angel is angelos which means either angel or messenger. So some say, okay, he's writing and he's saying to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, at Philadelphia, at Thyatira, at Smyrna. The other possibility is he's talking about a, he's talking about a supernatural being, an angel. And every one of, in all of John's other writings, whenever he uses this term angelos, he is referring to a, an, an angel, a, a supernatural angel. So that would indicate, and this is kind of an intriguing thought, that every local church has an angel, a guardian angel assigned to it to watch over and protect, spiritually protect this congregation. Kind of an interesting thought. Every one of these letters begins that way, and then they all have some kind of um, some kind of statement about Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, here I am. I am the one who walks among the lampstands. I am the one who holds the seven stars in his hand or something like that. All of them have some acknowledgement where Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I've seen the good things you've done. In this case, with the Ephesians, he says, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you bear up under hard times and, and that you don't have any tolerance for wicked people and evil teaching. They all have a verdict of some kind where, where Jesus says, now here's what I want you to do. Here's what I see in you that needs to change. They all uh, end with a promise of some kind and they all near the end say the following statement. They all say this. They say, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Who here has ears? Everybody? As far as I know? Yeah. So I think that statement's in there to say, if you're hearing these words, you may not be a, a citizen of Thyatira or Smyrna or Ephesus or Pergamum, but it's for you too. So listen up. So these words were specifically for specific people 2,000 years ago, but they're for us as well. So again, listen carefully. Let's see, how does this apply to us here at First Baptist Conroe? So let's take a look, at, a quick look at all the other six letters. The second letter was to a church in the town of Smyrna. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. See, that's not a good thing. You don't want to hear in a, in a letter from the Lord, you're about to go through persecution. Some of you will come to the point of death. And yet his command to them is don't be afraid. 
Some of you are aware of this, but that is the most common, that is the most repeated command in the Scriptures. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And I want you to know something. That does not mean that it's wrong to feel fear. If you turn on the news and you hear that something awful is happening, you know, last night some of you were aware there were tornadoes that hit uh, Canton, Texas, and, and several people died. If you hear that a tornado is coming our way, it is natural to feel fear. If it's, if it's two in the morning and your teenage son or daughter hasn't come, on, come home, it's natural to feel fear. If, if another company buys your company and there are layoffs that are scheduled and you don't know whether you're going to be laid off or not, it's natural to feel fear. If your spouse waits behind a corner and jumps out and startles you, it's natural to call a divorce lawyer. I'm, not kid- I'm just kidding with that. But it, it's natural to feel fear, and that's not wrong. The emotion you feel is not something you can control. But what do you do with that emotion? See, a church that lives in fear and lets fear control it is a church that doesn't do God's will because they're too afraid of losing what they have. They stop reaching out because they, they've taken on a fortress mentality. It's no longer about how can we reach people with the Word of God? How can we impact this world for Christ? It's about how can we make sure that the world doesn't take away what we have, our traditions, our relationships. And so you start to see the neighborhood around you no longer as your mission field, but as your battleground. And those people out there are the enemy. You have to keep them out, not bring them in. Fear not, Jesus said. The third letter is to the church in Pergamum. He says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. That's a reference to a story from the book of Numbers, which is very good to read sometime, but we won't go into that this morning. It says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Second time this morning we've heard that term. That was a group that the Ephesian churches had rejected, but these people in, in, Thiot, in, in, Smyr, in ah, Pergamum had embraced. So what, what Jesus is saying to them is, you've gone off course. You've bought into false teaching. If you ever read the New Testament, read every book of the New Testament, one thing you'll see they all have in common, besides exalting Jesus as Lord of all, all the books of the New Testament have this in common. They all warn us against false teachers. They all warn us, don't stray from the gospel that you were given, the teaching that we told you about Christ. Because the Lord knows it's such, it's such a, an easy way for the devil to get us off track. The gospel is the best news that's ever been heard. I mean, people who hear the story of Jesus, it's almost impossible to resist. So the devil's best strategy is either get us fighting amongst ourselves or get us, get us to believing something that's just a little bit off-center. It's just not quite the truth. And boy, we sure want to believe that it's okay for us to believe whatever we want. We sure want to hold on to this philosophy that says, hey, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, you can believe whatever you want about God. But there's one God, and there's one truth. And when we we believe something that's not true about God, guess what? We're not worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping a God of our own imagination, and that God can't save. The fourth letter to the church in Thyatira Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
See, in Thyatira, it was sort of like Pergamum where false teaching had had invaded the church, but they were further along, sad to say, further along that journey. And whereas the people in Pergamum were starting to think, oh, this is new stuff we're hearing. This is kind of exciting. This is interesting. The Thyatirans had already embraced it. And there was this tiny little minority of people who were still holding on to the truth, who weren't buying into the false doctrines that were being probably preached from their pulpit, probably taught in their classes. There's this little, little, little uh, remnant of people who were saying, but, but here's what the apostles said about Jesus. Let's hold on to that. And Jesus is bypassing the majority of the church in this letter. He's just speaking to that little group and saying, hold on. Don't give up. Don't quit. I've got you. And I sure hope that's not the letter to the First Baptist Church of Conroe. The fifth letter is to the church in Sardis. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Friends, every year, 4,000 churches in the United States close. Every year, 4,000 churches close their doors for the last time and are no more. They become banks or or school administration buildings or mosques or something else or, or strip malls. There's a lot of churches out there that have a great reputation, but are dead inside. There's nothing left. People go into church, but no life. Jesus says to those churches, to the people at Sardis, it doesn't matter what your reputation is. Your past won't help you. You need to wake up. You need to call on me and come back to me. We're going to talk about how to come back to him a little later. The sixth letter is to the church at Philadelphia, and it's the most positive of all the letters. He says to them, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And it's ironic that this is the most positive of all the seven letters because the Philadelphians, based on what Jesus says, they would have been the ones who said, well, we don't have anything to offer God. We're this tiny little church in this vast community full of people who are worshiping their pagan gods and and chasing after idols and political power, and and they don't listen to us, and, and we don't. We really don't have anything to offer the Lord. And Jesus says, you've got strength you don't even know about. You've got power that you you can't even comprehend. Just just don't underestimate what I can do do with you. Because I've I've opened a door in front of you. You can't see it. But if you walk through that door, if you follow me, you're going to see amazing things happen in and through your church in the days to come. Every pastor wants to be the church at Philadelphia. I promise you. And then there's the seventh letter. The seventh letter is to the church at Laodicea. This is the most famous of the seven letters. Uh, You probably, if you've read this at all, or if you've heard heard any sermons, you've probably heard this statement. Jesus says, you're you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're not, I want to spew you out of my mouth. When I was a little kid, I thought, well, does that mean he wants to puke? Yes, it does. Jesus literally says, you people make me want to puke. Jesus says that in Revelation 3. And then verse 20 is the most famous verse in his letter. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And the interesting thing about that verse is, all my life growing up, I heard that verse over and over again, especially when we were doing witnessing training, but it was always in the context of, see, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Oh, sinner, just open your heart and let him in, right? 
And the interesting thing about that is that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. In, in, in Revelation 3.20, Jesus is speaking not to lost people who are fleeing from him, but a church full of Christians who think they're following him. And he's knocking at the door of that church saying, let me in. Can you imagine Sunday after Sunday going through the motions of doing church and Jesus isn't even involved? He's out there going, man, I sure wish I was part of that. I sure would like to be part of that congregation, but they won't invite me in. What an indictment. So which one of those do you think fits our situation most accurately? All of them speak to us. All of them warn us. I don't know the answer to which one God would apply to us most distinctly. I will say the one that haunts me the most, the one that keeps me up at night, is the first one, the one we started with, the letter to the Ephesians. Let me tell you why. The Ephesian church, a lot like First Baptist Conroe, the Ephesian church had every reason to be faithful to God, had been given far more than they ever could have asked. The Ephesian church was planted by the Apostle Paul himself alongside his two friends, Priscilla and Aquila. It had the greatest series of pastors ever. I don't care what church you grew up in, you never had pastors like this. The Apostle Paul, number one, founding pastor. Then along comes Apollos, according to the book of Acts, one of the greatest speakers of all time. Then along comes a guy named Timothy. You ever heard of him? And then John himself, the guy who wrote Revelation, was their fourth pastor. They had everything they needed. They even had a book of the Bible named after them that was written straight to them. And Jesus writes to them, he says, hey, you're doing good in so many ways, but you've lost your first love. You got all the right doctrines. You believe all the right stuff. You're doing church well. Your heart's not in it though. You've lost your first love. Now, what does that mean exactly? Because that word love, and, and if you're a Bible geek like me, and, and many of you are, I know, then you've, you've, you've probably heard that there's, you know, the book of, the, or the New Testament is written in Greek, and there's actually three different words in Greek for the one English word love. And the word that John uses here, that Jesus uses and John writes down for us, is the Greek word agape. And that's a word that doesn't have anything to do with the emotions. It's not about sentiment. It's not about romance. It's not about you know, brotherly affection. It's simply about choice. And I know this is going to hurt some of your feelings, but this is the kind of love that it took Jesus to go to the cross because guess what? Jesus didn't go to the cross because you're likable. He didn't go to the cross because of your perfect hair or your straight teeth or your winning personality. He chose to put you ahead of Himself. He chose to die so you could live. And that's the kind of love he's talking about here. So he's not saying to the Ephesian Christians, you know, I remember when you used to raise your hand when you'd sing those songs and you don't raise your hands anymore. And I remember when you used to cry when you'd hear the story of me on the cross and you don't, you don't cry anymore. He's not saying that. The emotion was probably still there. You're not choosing anymore. It used to be you chose to put me first. Used to be you chose to love your neighbors as yourself. Used to be you chose to get out of your comfort zone and get involved in the lives of people who are lost. And now, and now you don't choose that anymore. You always choose yourself first. You're still plenty religious. You still believe the right things, but it's all about you. My brother-in-law Steve is a high school football coach. And uh, several years ago, his brother, who's also a football coach in Minnesota, where Steve is from, brought his whole staff down for a coach's convention in Houston. 
And he said to Steve, hey, um, while we're there, we want to go visit Katy High School because they'd heard even up in Minnesota that the Katy Tigers win practically every game. And they were like, oh, we want to see what their secret is. And here's the thing, for those of you who don't follow high school football, which is probably most of you, Katy does win 10, 11, 12 games every year, never fails. They win state every three or four years at least. And the, the thing about it is they don't, they don't even produce great athletes. I mean, not many of those Katy Tigers go on to play big-time college football. you got your Andy Daltons and your people like that, but, but compared to other big schools, it's not like they're doing it because they've got better athletes. Somehow they just get more out of their players. So these coaches, these Minnesota football coaches, wanted to see their secrets. So they went to a football practice. And I can tell you by experience, there's nothing exciting that goes on at a football practice. Nothing. I mean, if you go, you'll, you'll see a few guys out kind of half-heartedly going through the drills and the coaches trying their best to keep them motivated. The other guys are just sort of milling around, you know, talking about girls or whatever. But this was different. They showed up at this practice and the two teams had divided up and they were scrimmaging, or the team had divided up into, into two teams and were, they were scrimmaging each other. And it was like a real game. Guys were into it. The players were hitting hard and they were jumping up. And, and after a good play, they'd slap five and, and chest bump. And guys on the sidelines were yelling encouragement and the coaches were screaming. And it was, it was like being at a playoff game. And they were, the, the Minnesota guys were like, what is going on here? So one of them went up to one of the players who was on the sideline at the time and he slapped him on the shoulder pads. He said, son, what's at stake here? What do you get if you win the scrimmage today? And the kid looked at him and he said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, in order for you to be this excited about a scrimmage, which happens every day, surely the coaches are offering the winning team free Gatorade or going to take you to Dairy Queen or, you know, you don't have to run wind sprints or something like that, right? So what do you get? And the kid just looked at him like he was from another planet. And he said, we get pride. And then he turned and he watched his team. And those coaches looked at each other and they thought, well, we can't do this. This is not something we can manufacture. This group of young men had this culture of excellence so that anything less than 100% effort just, just wouldn't enough. If you would have shown up at practice and, and gone half-heartedly, you just wouldn't have fit in. There was a peer pressure that drove you to succeed. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you have been on a team like that at some point in your life. Some of you have been in a band or an orchestra or a choir or in a theater troupe where that was the code, that was the code. You had to give your all. Maybe you even worked for a company at one point that had a mission that you really believed in and everybody there was giving their all, not because of the paycheck, but because they believed in what that company did. Maybe you've even been a part of that kind of church. See, in a, in a church like that, mediocrity just, don't, just won't do. Everybody is committed. And I'm not talking about legalism because there's plenty of legalistic churches out there. There's plenty of churches where uh, they shoot their own wounded. You stumble, we're leaving you behind. In fact, you stumble, we're going to gather around you and make fun of you for a while so that everybody knows we don't sin like you do. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, in this kind of church, in the church that, that has found its first love and hasn't let go of it, in that kind of church, somebody stumbles and we love them enough to pick them up and, and dust them off and help them follow the path of Christ and never go down that road again. In that kind of church, in, in the church that has its first love, it's a church where you just don't hear people talking about what they want. 
And it's not about whether I like this song or whether I like that sermon or whether I like this program or, or, or that event. It's, it's all about what do we need to do? What can we do to reach more people? How, how can we be more impactful in our community? How can, we, how can we address this particular need in our town, on our street? What do we need to do to see people redeemed and discipled and equipped to fulfill their purpose in the world? I'm talking about a, a people, a group of people who are just, I mean, they're, they're from different races, different ages, different social backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, but they just love Jesus, and so all that other stuff doesn't matter. And they love him so much that they give themselves completely to him. And the result of that is so compelling that everybody they meet is transformed. They go from unbelieving to believing, from self-centered to self-sacrificing, from spiritually dead to spiritually transformed. And we see it happen Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It happens every time they gather. Every time they gather, some miracle occurs. Somebody gets saved. Somebody gets baptized. Somebody stands up and gives a testimony in their life group and says, look what Jesus is doing in my life. Somebody else stands up and says, man, I am broken, I am hurting, and everybody rallies around him and weeps with him. In fact, in that kind of church, if there's a Sunday where we just sort of go through the motions and leave and nothing big happens, we look around and we say to ourselves, wait, nobody got saved today. Nobody gave a testimony today. Nobody, nobody wept tears of joy. Is something wrong? Are we straying? Because mediocrity just won't do. And that's the kind of church that has found its first love. Because that's the kind of Savior Jesus is. And that's the kind of church that we're praying First Baptist becomes. And I believe it's going to happen. But we have to be diligent. We have to be prayerful. We have to want it more than we want things for ourselves. How do we get there? I love verse 5 of chapter 2 because that's where Jesus tells the Ephesians what they need to do to get back to their first love. And he gives them three commands in that verse. And I don't usually do this, y'all, so don't, don't expect this every time. But it just so happens that the three commands can be summed up in three words that all start with the letter R. All right? Again, don't get used to it. Adrian Rogers did it every Sunday. I'm not Adrian Rogers. I can't pull that off. But here's the way it goes, okay? Jesus says... Jesus says in, chapter five, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, um, consider how far you have fallen. In other words, remember. Remember where you once were. This is not about nostalgia. If you've been in this church a long time, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful to have come a year ago into a church that was already in such wonderful shape with so many great resources but this is not about people sitting around and saying, yeah, remember how we used to go and do this and that and this and that? And remember these great programs we used to have? It's not about that. He says, consider how far you've fallen. He's asking each one of us individually to say, man, I remember when I was really committed. When I didn't just come to church and expect others to do things for me. In fact, I didn't just come to church. Church wasn't an event or a place. It was, it was this body of believers that I was part of that I considered myself an integral part of. And I, I knew that if I didn't do the work, then it wasn't going to get done. I remember when I used to pray diligently every day, and I had a lot of lost people I was praying for by name. I remember when I used to give, man, I, I, I may give more now, but back then I gave more of what I had and, and with a greater heart. I remember when I used to sing, and I really meant the words. I remember when I used to open the Bible and, 
I wasn't just trying to get through my chapter today. I was actually asking God to speak to my heart. Can you remember when you were more committed? Can you remember when, when you were just excited about the kingdom? That's what Jesus is asking us to do right now. And then he says, the next R, repent. Consider how far you've fallen and repent. Repentance is always the answer. Now, I know we hear that word repent. If you've grown up in church, you associate it with the moment of conversion. And yes, that's how you become a Christian. In case, by the way, if you're not a Christian, you want to know Christianity is not this moment where you say, hey, I think Jesus is the best of all available gods. I think I'll follow him. It's not what it's about. Christianity is not, well, I like those creeds. I like that list of doctrines. I think I'll sign on. No, the way to become a Christian is you literally come to the point where you say, I'm done. I have had it with doing life the way I want to do it. Doing life on my terms is not working. So Jesus, you take over. That's, that's how you become a believer. That's how you're saved. That's repentance. But guess what? Repentance is not just how you get saved. It's how you live as a Christian. And the best follower of Jesus is not the one who's best at following the rules. Because if that were the case, the Pharisees would have been the best followers of Jesus ever. And they were the ones who led him to his death. Now, it's not about how well you can follow rules. It's about how repentant you are. The best followers of Jesus are consistently repentant, constantly coming to him and saying, okay, Lord, thank you for bringing me this far. I praise you for the joy that I have. But here's these other areas that I know I still need to follow you more faithfully in. Remember, repent, and then repeat, he says. He says, do the things you did at first. And again, this isn't about a, a church sitting around and saying, I remember when we used to have Sunday evening worship, and I remember when the preacher used to lead us on visitation on Tuesday nights, and I remember when. It's not about that. Because guess what? The early churches, the Ephesians and all of them, they didn't have church programs to revive they didn't have church buildings. They didn't have hymnals. They didn't have choirs. They didn't have youth groups. You know what they had? They had a group of people who would find some place to meet on a Sunday after they'd gone to work all day or maybe before they went to work because Sunday was a work day and they'd break bread and they'd pray together and they'd tell the old, old story of Jesus and they'd encourage each other and they'd pray and then they'd go out into the world and what little they had, they'd share it with people who needed and they'd tell people about what Jesus had done for them and they set the world on fire. And Jesus is saying, go back and do the things you used to do when you were more committed to me. In three weeks, I believe, three or four weeks, my wife and I will have been married 25 years. Very, it's gone very quickly. 25 years, um, we've had 23 great years together because they haven't all been easy. Those of you who are married, have been married a while, you know what I'm talking about. And one of the things I've learned in marriage is that feeling in love is exciting. Feeling in love is great, and I've got it. But real love is not what you feel. It's making a decision. It's an act of the will. And one of the things I've learned about myself is if I wait until I feel like putting my wife first, if I wait until I, I feel like caring about her preferences more than mine or, or caring about her plans for the day more than mine, I'm never going to do it. I mean, any of y'all who've spent any time with my wife, you know, you know, it's easy for me to adore her, but that's not the same as giving myself up for her like Jesus talks about in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church and laid down his life for her. I can't even lay down the remote most days. 
So one thing I've learned is don't wait until I feel like it. Just do it. Just, just choose. Just choose to, to put her first. I don't do that often enough, but when I do, it's always a good idea. And the feelings come after that. Then I'm like, hey, I'm glad I did that. That feels good. Let's do that again. And marriage has so many analogies to our relationship with Christ. If you wait until you feel like committing your life to Him, it's never going to happen. If you wait until you feel like getting involved in ministry, feel like crossing the cul-de-sac to talk to your neighbor about Christ, if you wait until you feel like giving more to the kingdom, it's never going to happen. Just do it. And if you're sitting there Sunday after Sunday saying, I'm just not getting anything out of this, yeah, that's partially on me and Robert and Nathan. We, we could probably do better, but it's also on you. Make a choice. Choose to give your all to Him. Do the things you did when you were more committed, and those feelings of joy will return. In 1864, a Swedish man named Emil Nobel was killed in a tragic explosion of nitroglycerin. Now, he had a famous brother named Alfred. Alfred Nobel was well known as the inventor of dynamite. He'd made a great fortune selling explosives. The local newspaper there in Sweden got the details wrong. They thought it was Alfred who had died. So the next morning when Alfred Nobel woke up, not only was he still grieving the loss of his brother, he was shocked to see that banner headlines proclaimed that Alfred Nobel had passed away. In fact, that news went worldwide. And what disturbed Alfred Nobel more than seeing his name in print, I mean, it's bad enough to wake up and see your own ob obituary, right? What made him even more disturbed was that every article he read all over the world, they all referred to him primarily as the inventor of TNT. In fact, some of them called him the merchant of death. And he said to himself, is this how I want to be remembered? So from that day forward, he devoted himself to changing his legacy. He took his vast fortune and he donated almost all of it to a foundation whose purpose was to give awards to people who have blessed humanity in the areas of, of the arts or the sciences or peace. So every, every year when they give out the Nobel Peace Prize or the Nobel Prize for Literature or Music or Biology or Chemistry, just remember that, that comes out of the legacy of a man who was determined to change the way people saw him. And that's blessed a lot of people. But I want to tell you something. There's something even greater. It's fine. It's fine. If you want to change the way people think of you, that's fine. Far, far greater to say, Lord, I want to change who I am. That song the choir sang, Spirit of the living God, come, fall fresh on us. Change what we see and what we seek. He can do it. Only He can do it. And guess what? Jesus didn't give up His fortune so our reputation could be better. Jesus gave up His life on the cross so our eternity could be changed. And so that anytime we want, as His followers of Jesus, anytime we want, we can come back to Him and say, Lord, I have strayed from You. I've, I've wandered from my first love. And I want to come home. We sang a song earlier today, Revive Us Again. Revive Us Again. Every great revival in church history has started when God's people, not atheists or unbelievers of other kinds, but God's own people stood up within their churches and said, listen, I know I'm a deacon, I'm a life group leader, I'm a, I'm a nursery worker, I'm a pillar of this church, but I have to admit to you, I've wandered from Christ. I'm not living the way I should. And then that that 
that spirit of repentance just spread through the congregation and then from them through the town and from the town through the state and the region and the nation. It starts with us. It starts with us getting before God and saying, Lord, I have wandered from you. You're no longer my first love, but I'm going to make you my first love today. It's not about waiting for some feeling to descend upon you. It's about remembering where you were, repenting of the things you know aren't right, and doing the things you did when you were committed to Him.